So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome Ian Self. Ian is a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Anesthesia and Analgesia and he's also the head of the Anesthesia and Analgesia Service here at the Queen Mother Hostel for Animals. So thanks very much, Ian, for joining me today. No problem. Um, Actually, before we get into the podcast, um, one of the things I wanted to mention, and we won't talk about it today, but I'm hoping to get you back in the future on just just reading the name of our service, actually, is Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. analgesia thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And again, hopefully we'll come back one day in the future and do a podcast focusing on analgesia as yeah, opposed to today yeah. which we're going to be talking a lot about um we, we've got our launch evening as well on the 4th of december when we're doing a free cpd for analgesia um presentation so it's a two-hour thing okay, i don't so. know if we can get that in somewhere but that would be quite useful no, absolutely, because i think um, i know yeah. we, we've discussed uh, at other times about the the importance of um of analgesia per se so just as i was kind of uh in the name of the service i was thinking about that anyway that's that's for a future time um so today what i wanted to do was to try and basically provide our listeners with basically some tips on how they can go about trying to maximize the safety um around general anesthesia in dogs and cats and so hopefully we'll cover some of the things that they need to think about the things that they need to be um prepared for and then, like, like with a lot of these sort of earlier podcasts, I hope that we'll come back um, at some time in the future and maybe discuss some of the things we cover today in, in a bit more detail. Um, so I guess the way I was looking at, at this was that we will go on to talk about four different kind of parts of the whole anesthesia process, if you like. But I guess the thing that first came to my mind was really essentially kind of from off the bat, really, we are more or less looking at two kinds of categories of patients. So we've got the, the kind of elective or non-emergency ones, and then we've got the kind of emergency patients. Do you think that's a kind of reasonable categorization from the beginning? Or? I, I think that's a good way to look at it, actually. Certainly with the elective cases, they are normally quite fit and healthy, and we've got time to prepare for those. Yeah. And yet the emergency cases are, by definition, quite sick, and we have limited time to prepare for those. So really, it would be nice if we could swap those round and have a lot more time to prepare <laughs> for the emergencies. That never happens in the real world, but no. uh, that, that's a good way of looking at it, yeah. So, so I guess, you know, if, um, if you're in the clinic and someone comes to you and says, I've got an elective patient versus an emergency patient, you, you're sort of triggering different thought processes in your head already. I I think that's true. Certainly with the elective cases, although we try to get away from routine and this is how we do it in particular cases, we certainly have a lot more experience with those standard cases and and how they're going to react. We we know about that. The emergency cases, they they can be what I call fun in that you don't know exactly what's going to happen. They can present with a whole range of physiological problems of uh, limited background, limited history sometimes, um, limited time to prepare. And so we have to be much more on the ball with with very acute monitoring. We have to watch them very closely. We have to be prepared for anything. Yeah. And and that's that's what makes those cases fun, which is why yeah, I call well, them fun. You're talking to an ECC person. That's <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> you know I agree. <laughs> okay, good. So um, I guess we're, we're talking about both categories of patients, really, and I wanted to try and break the whole peri-anesthesia period kind of into four parts and then just sort of consider each in turn um, today. So I guess the first part I had in mind was kind of focusing on the patient in terms of his or her signaments, history, 
clinical problems. Um, we obviously don't have time to kind of break each little thing down into a lot of detail. But I wondered if you could kind of summarize what sort of things people need to be thinking about in the context of the segment history and, and clinical problems. And also remind us if there are any kind of classification systems that we can use to categorize those patients on the basis of that information. Yeah, sure. There's there's a whole range, and like you say, we could do a, we we could do several podcasts actually on <laughs> on on this alone. Yeah. But we 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 think in terms, let's say, age, um, young, fit, healthy patients. So the majority that are presented to us for things like castrations and spays, they're going to be six to nine months. They're going to be relatively healthy, little little background problems usually. Of course, then we have the extremes of age. So we have the neonates, which are quite rare to anaesthetize actually, but they, they present a, a whole different spectrum of conditions, such as congenital conditions, and the way that we treat them has to be very different. But I guess, again, going back to the time that I was in practice, we used to see lots of older patients. So the patients with lumps and bumps to be removed, uh, the dentals, for example. These patients are, are difficult, because although I say age is not a disease, because mm. look at me, I'm, I'm personally reasonably healthy yet very old, um, I, I think we have to be aware that as patients age, we get lack of organ, organ function, organ reserve, for example. So a badly managed anaesthetic in a very older patient with perhaps underlying but subclinical cardiovascular disease, for example, will not be well tolerated by that patient. Mm. Yet in the younger patients, we, we can usually get away with things like that, unfortunately. Not that we should, of course, yeah. but um, that, that's the way of the world. So I think, again, that uh, a very important part of... The, the older patients particularly, is looking at things like cardiovascular status. So doing things like a thorough pre-op exam, although it's one of the basic things that we all know we should do, we should really take, take, take care over that exam. And I think by doing that, we can forestall a lot of problems that we might okay. come across. In terms of classification, there are various systems that we use to look at patients. Um, the one that we use typically here is the ASA, or American Society of Anesthesiologists classification, which runs from one to five, one being a really fit, healthy patient, can't find anything wrong with it, five being a patient who we really don't expect to survive, and we're quite often doing this for palliative reasons. Um, it's important to realize, though, that nothing should overdo and overlook a full clinical exam. Full clinical exam really will get you out of, out of a lot of the problems that you, you don't foresee. And, um, and so with that ASA classification, <clears throat> um, are there others? Because that seems to be the one that gets used most widely. It is used most widely, but I think the important thing to remember is it's not a risk um, classification. The first thing actually that ASA say on their website is this is not a risk status, this is purely a health status. So it's a way of actually putting patients into different groups to say, yes, this patient's very healthy, this patient is very sick. And because of that, it quite often triggers in us different approaches to, to anesthesia and different, different levels of monitoring. Okay, and um, was that a veterinary classification or...? No, it's a, it's a human classification, but it's widely used in the veterinary literature and it's the one that we really have available and I think that we mo most places are applying in terms of anaesthetic. Um, again, I don't want to use the word risk because yeah. it's definitely not a risk assessment, but it, but it aids in the, in the risk assessment. And um, so in that, in that sort of... In that context about aiding in the risk assessment, um, mm. I guess one of the questions we always, when we're trying to promote people to do things, 
is kind of telling them why they should be doing them. Mm. And then the next question of that is, well, where's your evidence? Where's your proof? So mm-hmm. d- do we have any kind of evidence of any sort that using a classification system, and especially the ASA one, that it actually ultimately has any benefits, or is it really just a tool? That it, it, it is a tool, that's absolutely right, although there is a definite correlation between ASA status and risk of death under anaesthesia. So it, it can actually double the, the, the risk of death under anaesthesia if a patient is in a higher ASA status. So sort of a way of um, getting the individual, I guess, to kind of focus their thought processes I, I and, think and formalise their assessment. That, that's precisely it. It, it. it makes you sit down and actually think about, okay. what am I going to do how risk is this likely to be taking into account how healthy this patient and, is. and in essence um that in itself is the justification for doing it is that's forcing right. people to that's that's right yeah. um fine and then presumably in terms of signalment beyond age the sort of breed related things i, I guess the, the one that most obviously comes to my mind would be the sort of brachycephalic dog yeah. thing which again so i guess you guys are you know very familiar potentially with anesthetized kinds of patients but the moment someone says to you oh, i've got a bulldog mm-hmm. you're kind of thinking okay so these are the things i have to be I, I'm, I'm thinking of a whole different range of problems um we, we have to still take account of the underlying physiology so full cardiovascular exam etc yeah. then we have the reason that we're anesthetizing those patients for it may hopefully be just a routine spay castrate something like that but quite often they present with breed specific problems but then on top of that yes anything that's brachycephalic and you you mentioned a bulldog i've actually anesthetized three of those this week <laughs> for, for for good timing uh, for you yeah. um but they all have airway issues shall we say so the moment that you pre-med or sedate one of these patients i think for me that's the that's the crucial time these patients airways will collapse and you will see them struggling for breath um the the, the choice of equipment for example they nearly always need a smaller endotracheal tube than you'd actually expect for their weight um and we really have to be quick and slick in in maintaining an airway with these patients yeah Yeah. um and i guess before we move on from this sort of pre-assessment bit i i can't really not ask you about this whole doing blood tests and the justification for them and Mm. again that's a sort of can of worms conversation that i'm sure we could talk about for ages but um you know what's your take on renal function, liver function, value of pre-anesthetic screening tests sure. and so on? I, I think the value is is debatable in certain cases. And as a routine, for example, let's take a, a case that is six years of age, has no clinical history, no, no, no problems that we're particularly worried about. Does that mean that we must take blood tests? For, for me personally, no, it, it, it doesn't. I think pre-op blood tests are very useful to aid in the medical database of a patient, tell us where we're up to with control of a certain condition or for future reference. The, the big question that I always ask myself is, if this dog's, let's say we're anesthetizing a, a collie, six-year-old collie, its urea is, is slightly raised, would that alter my anesthetic approach? And in 90% of cases, no, it wouldn't, because I, I do put all of my dogs on fluids. I, I do treat them as if they have no liver and use drugs which are easily metabolizable mm-hmm. or easily antagonizable. So I, I think it's, it's, it's debatable as to whether they actually add any Anything. I do feel strongly, though, that if there is evidence on clinical exam of a problem with a particular organ system, then absolutely I, I would insist on bloods for that particular condition. And I guess, um, you know, we'll touch on later about maybe some of the differences between what we do here and your kind of typical, in inverted commas, general practice environment. But I suppose 
if the basis of doing that, those blood tests, and obviously they come at a cost to the owner as well, but if the basis of doing those blood tests prompts you to do different anesthesia management, so for example, you mentioned fluids, and obviously we, I, I would be in the camp of saying put them on fluids, forget the blood test in a way, but um, I suppose if, if the trigger for you putting a patient on fluids is going to be the basis of a blood test, and I guess you can maybe start to see a different sort of valid or justification for, Abs- for maybe doing abs- them. But. Absolutely. I think the important thing is that with the blood tests, you have to act on them yeah. and not just take them and, uh, and make... Because certainly I, I was in practice for 10 years and I certainly felt that a lot of owners thought that blood tests were some form of insurance that would yeah. make things safer yeah. because we could say that everything was okay. Yeah. The underlying risks still remain the same, but certainly if we identify a disease that needs specific treatment prior to or during anaesthesia, then they're of value. Okay. There was a survey done by the Association of Veterinary Anaesthetists that actually looked at this, and it was found that 0.01% of anaesthetics would actually have been changed by the results of pre-op blood testing alone ignoring the fact that we do full clinical exams so we we still tend to rely more on full clinical exams and if i have no bloods and my exam's fine i will still treat that patient the same way because it's it's a i mean it's i'm being very guilty here of going on a massive tangent but because i I know clinics that are doing pre recommending pre-op bloods in young neutering animals that are in for elective neutering procedures Mm -hmm. and it throws up huge questions really about that um yeah i I, again i I think the important thing is if you're prepared to act on the results so so doing that is fine as long as you're telling the owners why you're doing that Mm. and i think you have to be honest with the owners that you're very unlikely to actually come up with anything in those cases but if you do you have to act on it you you can't just um ignore it and i suppose that you know the peace of mind aspect to the owners whatever the scientific foundation of that mm. it can't be undervalued either i guess I, I, again that is true um I, I i do believe that although i think it's the way that you present it and yeah. if you if you present it as an insurance policy then i think <laughs> that's 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 the wrong way but certainly letting them know that you're you're doing everything you can for the patient including checking even the unlikely things i think i think that's perfectly valid yeah, yeah. Excellent. Um, so then I kind of wanted to move on to the next sort of uh, stage in this, which was the kind of pre-anesthesia um, preparation. So there is this saying, which um, I think kind of sort of applies here, which is um, a bit cliched, but it's, you know, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. And I guess, um, is that something that you would say does apply to the conversation that we're having here? And then kind of maybe elaborate a little bit on what kind of pre-anesthesia considerations people should have absolutely i think um we 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 do our first preparing again i keep coming back to this but the pre-op exam which is quite often just one of those things you do quickly before you anesthetize something the number of times i've picked up problems that have changed what i do on that is is absolutely uh, yeah it's incredible you could count it on the fingers of of many many hands not Mm. just my own so i do think that that is the most essential part of preparation for anesthesia it's knowing the patient having a look at the history being aware of of previous problems as well and then of course we had the equipment side of things Um, I must admit to occasionally forgetting to put on a breathing system onto my anaesthetic machine just before anaesthetizing a patient turning around and finding it's not there and then having a a mad rush to get things ready so in my own mind still to this day I I actually go through all the steps I'm going to go for go through rather to anaesthetize a patient and get it onto a stable plane of anaesthesia do you have um because again there's this whole discussion about the value of checklists as well and you know some people almost feel like it's a it's a what's the word um 
an admission of being fallible and you know not being completely perfect that they have to use a checklist and others would say well that's ridiculous because actually if it makes the whole situation less mm. open to error mm. why wouldn't you do it and I, I guess i'm in that camp really i think we don't have many checklists in, in what i do but there's probably scope for more and i guess listening to you saying or oh, maybe sometimes forget to put a breathing check on mm. do we have a checklist that mm. we go through or do you think we should have one or? um we we do actually have one that we go through with the students that the students are supposed to follow but uh, do as <laughs> i do not as i say i think is that or, or something like that is the phrase yeah. um i i'm all for checklists i think checklists are a great reminder um, we all have good days and bad days, and we can all forget something essential in the steps. So absolutely, checklists are a very good idea. I don't think we need to be rigid with them, but I think the checklists need to include the minimum for safely anaesthetizing a patient. So the equipment, the checks that you need to do, the, the drugs and the personnel, and we certainly do use them. Excellent. And um, <clears throat> in, in this sort of context of the pre-anesthesia period, I wanted to just briefly touch on the concept of pre-medication. Mm -hmm. And um, just if you could essentially remind us what it is, but also what are we trying to achieve with the pre-medication? And in that sense, does it matter what we use? That's a, a, a very big question. Yeah, That's is, a yeah. very, very big question. That's fine. Yeah, two minutes. <laughs> what, what, what am I after with pre-med? Pre-medication is there to calm the patient because it's a stressful environment being pulled up onto a table, having needles put into your arm, having drugs injected with all the, the noises and the sounds going along. And we certainly know that a calm patient will not be releasing adrenaline, for example, which may adversely affect its heart. So a pre-med in the first case is to calm a patient. We also use it quite extensively to give analgesia. So we make sure usually that we have analgesics on board in these patients so that we can hopefully stave off some of the worst effects of surgery. The other big advantage is it tends to reduce quite dramatically our doses of um, induction agents that we use, and particularly the alpha-2 agonists such as metatomidine will dramatically reduce the amount of induction agent you need. And that's good in the, in the sense that things like propofol, for example, alfaxalone, are all cardiovascular depressants. Mm. So hopefully we can minimize their effects of those. And I think the final thing that we need to remember about what pre-medication is, is that if you're having poor recoveries in practice or, or here at the IVC, the first thing we look at is the pre-med because a lot of the pre-med drugs, particularly things like acepromazine, ACP, will be lasting for six to eight hours and really smooth recovery as well. So they're really helpful during the recovery period as well. And um, in, in the context of the, the drugs that we use, I mean, I realize this is a hugely general question, mm -hmm. um, but I guess, you know, there, there must be some things that help us decide we're going to use this drug or that drug, you know, what, what kind of things? I, I think I think that's right. I think the, the major things that we change, I, let, let me take a step back. I think dogs, for example, it's rare for me to anesthetize dogs without acepromazine on board. ACP is a very good sedative agent. It, it provides good background sedation. It really does reduce the dose of other drugs I need. Um, and it's nice and long acting. So that tends to get used a lot. What I change more would be the analgesia component, and that really is dependent on what I think is going to be happening to the patient. If the patient's being anaesthetized for a short um, x-ray procedure and then clip nails, let's say, that dog really doesn't need much else in terms of strong analgesia, mm. and, and anything will do as long as I've got a, a, an adequately calm dog. If a dog's going for major invasive surgery, even things like thoracotomies, limb amputations, for example, those dogs will always get a full
full mu agonist with in my hands, something like methadone or morphine. Um, so it's it's really important that that component changes. And yeah. um, on, on the topic of full mu agonist, again, I don't, you know, we'll do an analgesia podcast in the future. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that doing CPD for people, you know, the whole we're we're very very pro the use of you know pure mu agonists mm-hmm. in in conscious anesthetized whatever patients. Sure. Um, and one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is trying to dispel the fear of the potential adverse effects mm. of those drugs. Mm. And I guess um, I just, I'm looking to you to reassure our listeners in a way that mm. you have no, as long as they're used judiciously and safely, et cetera, et cetera, yep. that yep. you have no qualms about, you know, liberal use of pure uh, abs- opioids. Absolutely no qualms whatsoever. The, the the big problem is that you have to sign in a book. So, yeah. you know, that's that's a 50, 59 pence book from Tesco with, with lines ruled in it. Yeah. Um, no, or, absolutely or other, no. Other supermarkets, or are, other supermarkets yeah. are available <laughs> indeed. That's absolutely right. Um, but no, I, 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 I use more formula agonists than anything else. Um, they, they are much less expensive than the licensed alternatives. Um, they provide a much better effect as well. The side effects that are listed are really human-related side effects, which is where the drugs were, were developed and, and people worry about things like, for example, respiratory depression, mm-hmm. which, yes, can be a problem in people. In our patients who are in pain, absolutely no problem when used at appropriate doses. So and, we have no uh, problems. Did you, do you appreciate a different sort of under-anesthesia? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, occasionally we will have dogs referred who, through, through no fault of anybody, happen to have had something like butorphanol, which is a mixed Antagonist, antagonist, and we certainly can recognise those patients under anaesthesia because it's actually difficult to give formula agonists on top of that, yeah. um, and we see they're quite unstable. They they can be difficult to control. Okay. So yeah, absolutely. I don't want to miss this opportunity to, no, to no, no, put no, no. the plug in. Me, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Good. So the, the third part in my little sequence here was obviously the um, the anaesthesia itself and induction and maintenance. Um, and I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you was that people often say that in the context of anesthesia, it's actually less about the drugs themselves and more about your kind of familiarity with the agents that you're using. So I guess, is that something that you agree with? And if you could say a little bit about the kinds of drugs, um, you know, whether it matters what drugs are used for actual induction and mm. maintenance of anesthesia. Sure. No, I, I agree entirely with you. There's, there's a saying, there are no safe anesthetic drugs, there are only safe anesthetists, and I think that's absolutely right. Every drug that we use to produce anesthesia will have a side effect. Now, the side effect may be very small, it may be major, and it will depend on the condition and the species and the patient, etc. But I think whenever I am dealing with a very sick patient, I do not, at that stage particularly, want to start using new drugs which may theoretically be better for those patients. I want to use the drugs that I'm 100% familiar with and use them safely. So give them slowly to effect just to maintain exactly what I want to maintain and be aware and know about what goes wrong with my particular drug when it goes wrong Mm. so that I can deal effectively with it. So I I absolutely agree with you. My, My... my, my my commonest combination for anesthetizing a dog, for example, acepromazine, morphine, propofol, isoflurane, and oxygen. And I will use that combination in, in very sick peritonitis cases and in very healthy um, castrates and spays. And yes, I will use them differently in each time. So with my sick cases, I will be titrating my doses absolutely to effect. Mm. And I will be concentrating 
very, very much on the patient and seeing the effect of my drug on the patient. Yeah. With the, the healthier patients, yes, I will tend to be a bit more liberal with my doses, uh, knowing that this patient will be fine and has a lot of reserve. I think any, any anaesthetic has a potential to go wrong, obviously, at any stage, but I know what's going to go wrong with my familiar drugs. I know what they're going to produce, and therefore I'm looking for that at the back of my mind all the time. And if I were using a brand new drug at that stage, I wouldn't know if it were the drug or the patient that was going wrong. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it, that um, I suppose there's a certain element of if it ain't broke... Um I, I sometimes think so. Something like alfaxone is a drug that I personally have very little experience with mm-hmm. because I haven't used it in my mm-hmm. population of patients, and I don't anesthetize many patients nowadays doing sure. what I do. So that's one of those drugs that I sort of like. It's been around for a while. Yeah. I haven't used it much. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of appealing to say, "Well, I want to try using this new mm-hmm. drug." Mm-hmm. And I, said, I think well, I, I think that's fine. I think speak to people who have used it and see what their feelings are about yeah. it. And I think use it on your healthy patients first. Get get used to the feel of it and how much you inject. For example, the reason I use alfaxlone is not for any clinical reason. It's because the actual volumes you have to give to a larger dog are much smaller than propofol. So rather than switching syringes halfway through an induction agent through an induction, sorry, I quite often use alfaxlone just because it's a handier syringe size and just one syringe. But that's fine. I'm, I'm used to using it because I've used it in healthier patients first, and that's really where I'd get used to, to new drugs. Uh, I think stick to familiar things, particularly in the cases of, of critical, critical patients. Yeah, fair enough. <clears throat> um, and then in terms of the actual principles of kind of maintaining anesthesia, again, you know, we, we could talk about that on its own, but um, what, what sort of summary of what are the things that people should be keeping an eye on and also in terms of guidance for sort of maintenance of, an, of anesthesia depth, um, yeah. Just, yeah. Some, just some kind of comments about maintenance yeah. of anesthesia. Sure. I think during anesthesia, again, use the agents that are familiar to you. My my, I, I tend to use a mix of sevoflurane and isoflurane, depending on the case, uh, and I'm happy with either. Um, I tend to give 100% oxygen. Some people like nitrous as well, which is fine, again, if you're familiar with it. Um, in terms of anaesthetic management during during that stage or during the surgery stage almost, we're looking at two things. We're looking at um, the, the plane of anesthesia, the stage of anesthesia. I, I try not to use depth of anesthesia because I think anesthesia isn't a submarine, but that's, that's absolutely fine. It's <laughs> that's just, me too. Just, no, 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 no. It's just one of my little picky things, that's all. So I will look at the plane of anesthesia, yeah, i.e., is the patient adequately anesthetized for yeah. what we're doing, i.e., is the patient responding by either increasing heart rate, respiratory rate, starting to pant, etc., or, or frankly, sometimes moving, in which case, obviously, the, the, the level of anaesthetic is, isn't quite right, so we need to adjust that. But I think it's worth remembering that we're also looking at the physiology of the patient, and it's really a balance of the two. We can get most patients absolutely still and non-reflexive for quite major surgeries, but at the, the level of anaesthesia we'd be at, we, we would have serious cardiovascular side effects. They would be bradycardic, getting very cold, poor blood pressure, etc. So it's really a balance of the two. And I think the major thing, the major thing during that stage is having some Somebody who's dedicated to watching that patient, mm. who's aware of what's happening, who's aware of the trends, aware of the reason for the trends as well. Um, sometimes in my job as, as more of a 
an anaesthetic supervisor for several anaesthetics at the time that, that people in the, the RVC are doing, um, it's difficult to sometimes walk in and suddenly pick up on what's been happening on an anaesthetic. Mm. And therefore, sitting with an anaesthetic and being dedicated to it is, is much more important than anything else. But you do have to balance physiology with, with, with how much anaesthesia is actually on board these patients. Yeah. Um, and actually, something else I wanted to touch on here was Obviously, we have um, you know a dedicated anesthesia and analgesia service, um, and obviously, lucky enough to have a lot of equipment, a lot of monitoring, and a lot of people that are increasingly experienced with the whole peri-anesthetic period. But a lot of people listening to this podcast will not have access to either specialist anaesthetists or all the equipment that we have here. Um, and I guess what we're saying is that. Even without all that equipment and dedicated anaesthetists, it is perfectly possible to achieve safe general anaesthesia in first opinion, general practice, as long as you're focusing on the important things. Is that, is that the stance that's, that's that you share? absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Again, my, my first 10 years after graduation were in practice, and the first three of those I was operating basically on a kitchen table in the back of a semi-detached house in Manchester, and yet I think we did a very safe job there. And again, it's having somebody dedicated and watching the patient. The most important monitor is, is a person feeling pulses, watching what's happening, happening and being aware of trends in the patient. You don't need all the fancy toys. Toys are very nice, but we should be monitoring the patient and not monitoring the monitors, which is a, a trap that some people fall into. And I think the other thing is, if you are going to get a nice monitor, know how to use it and know how to act on the information it's telling you. And I think really keeping things simple, remembering depth of anesthesia, as you put it, and I, I, I can't keep the submarine out of my head now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a plane of plane anesthesia. Of anesthesia that's right. Um, and, and physiology are, are, are really important. I mean, that, you, um, you know, that, that was a point that I think it's worth just saying again, really, is about this whole kind of... Um, you know, the monitoring equipment doesn't mm. replace the human. No, absolutely um, not. And actually, from having spent a bit of time recently sort of supervising people in, in first opinion practice, one of the other potential problems with monitors is just, you know, sometimes people get one monitor mm. and then it's not working for a while and then yeah. it goes off to be repaired. And, you know, we're, again, we're lucky here. We have sort of eight or something and mm. we can usually find another one somewhere and so on. Yeah. Um, but becoming dependent on a machine, mm. I think, is a you know a potential perilous uh, thing. So I think it's yes. good. It's good to hear you stress that, and I think it's worth us stressing it again. Really, that they're, they're supplementary to you. They're not. They're, they're, they should be an aid, and that's all. Yeah. And I, I, I certainly am. Unfortunately pick on a, cute, a few students who are, are monitoring the monitors, I, I will put a cover over the monitor or turn it off. And I, and I think that's perfectly a good thing to do. I think we should be relying on how the patient's doing, mm. not what the monitor might be trying to tell us is happening. Yeah. Excellent. And um, I guess the last period that I had in my kind of sequential thing was looking at the whole um, you know, recovery from anesthesia mm -hmm. period. And I suppose... Mm -hmm. That is potentially a time when you can drop the ball on all the good work that you've done mm. to that point. And, and mm. even looking at our own hospitals here, when I, you know, when I first came here sort of 10, 11 years ago, the recovery room didn't exist. Mm. And the, the situation that we have now where even sometimes towards the latter part of the day, patients come to ICU essentially to make sure that they're adequately monitored in their recovery. Mm. Mm. Um, and so that period, I guess, again, is another time when you could do brilliant work, take the patient back, go away, mm. and 
you know, so yeah, if you could just sort of stress a few words about that period yeah. as well and the potential pitfalls. Uh, absolutely, um, recovery is is akin to landing. I, th- I think anaesthesia has been has been looked at in terms of flying a plane, but induction is takeoff. Um, going along on maintenance is just when you've got the autopilot on usually and just checking everything. But then landing is recovery, and that's quite often the most critical period, particularly for for some of our, our patients. Um, things like I got a bulldog that we were talking about earlier. Uh, my big worry in that dog is actually surprisingly not uh, induction or maintenance. I know that we're usually okay with that stage, but when we remove our endotracheal tube at the end of the procedure, that's when this patient is likely to, again, have, a, have an obstructed airway. So absolutely, recovery should be quiet. It should be well monitored, as well monitored really as, as maintenance, which I think is something that I certainly, in, when I was in practice, was guilty of forgetting. Once that tube's out, that's great. I can move on to the next one. Mm. There should always be checks going on with those patients. Um, a lot of patients that are lying there and don't seem to do very well as well. They, they're just lying and, and don't seem to be recovering that well. Um, nearly always those patients are hypothermic and they need active warming. Occasionally you'll get one that's hypoglycemic, particularly if it's been a long procedure and they actually need glucose to, to recover properly. And then, of course, there may be residual effect of some drugs, particularly mm. the potent sedatives such as the alpha-2 agonist, so metatomidine. Um, those we really should be antagonizing at that stage. But recovery should be warm, quiet, and yet actively monitored. And active monitoring can be popping in every five minutes and having a look and feeling pulses, but, but really it should be no less than that. Mm. Ideally, somebody should be keeping an eye on these patients all the time. Um, and so, in the sort of just to kind of discuss the the safety of the whole anesthesia thing, do, do we have um, any kind of published data about the incidence of perianesthetic deaths in, in dogs and cats? And I guess the other question I had was, is that information information that has come from referral centres, or is it information that's come from the kind of first opinion environment? Okay. Well, we have a we have a study from I think it was two thousand and eight called the SEPSAF study, um, which was actually led by Dave, Dave Broadbelt from the RVC. I'm mm-hmm. happy to say, um, and this was a huge multi-center study. Um, he was looking at a, I think it was one hundred and seventy both practices and referral institutions. So actually, this was data from across a whole spectrum of veterinary practices, from yes, referral down to single person. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, veterinary practices, the, the the numbers are quite interesting because there was a previous sepsis study about ten years before that, and luckily we've improved over the over the last few years. Overall, anaesthetic death rates for about one in six hundred dogs and about one in four hundred cats. I won't tell you the rabbit figures because they don't take very nice. Actually, yeah. I will. It's one in 72 rabbits, unfortunately, overall, will, will die as a result of perioperative complications. That's better than it was. That's better than it was. But I still think when you compare that to the human side, which is about one in 10,000 deaths overall, we're, we've still got some way to go. And, um, and I guess even if there's been any, any progress on those numbers since that paper came out, mm, it still won't mm. be comparable to the human and, situation. And, and unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. But um, that's where we're at. I, I think we are a lot safer than we were, and we are improving all the time. Um, and obviously the, our, our sick patients with more advanced 
prevalence diseases certainly have, have worse death rates than that mm. but then again we are attempting more and, and pushing things forward so inevitably that comes at some cost and um i guess you know death is probably the most well it is <laughs> the most important outcome that we're interested in um but do we know much at all about other kind of non-fatal complications around anesthesia or? Um, there's been lots of work looking at that and surprisingly more of that has been done in horses than in small animals and 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 rabbits and exotics so i, I think we're all aware of of things like near misses and and, and problems like that um one of the common ones that's been for some reason discussed quite a lot just just lately is things like blindness in cats particularly yeah. following dental work yeah. um that tends to self-resolve but um it, it is sporadically reported as well yeah. so um we're, we're not that good at reporting associated uh, morbidity compared to mortality i think in peri-anesthetic peri situations um i guess i was thinking of two things what one was um on the subject of gathering data, I think you, you know that we are, and actually Dave is you know, heavily involved in the Vet Compass project, which is this mm. project of data gathering for multiple institutions. And I guess it has potential implications for multiple things, but this may be another, another situation in terms of looking at anesthesia, non-fatal complications, yep. deaths and so on, that we might get some informa more information from that. But the other thing I was thinking was just really before we finish was... I suppose one of the things, um, again, like I was saying before, really, is kind of trying to convince people why all the things we've been discussing today matter. And putting those numbers in context of the numbers of animals that actually die, I think, is, is one way of saying, mm. well, actually, we're trying to avoid death. Mm. One of the things I guess we have to sort of uh, face and struggle to a little bit with is that we know that there are dogs and cats being neutered, for example, in foreign countries that are rescue uh, stray animals, for example, mm. you know, you'll see pictures of them being done in a hut and all this kind of mm. stuff. Mm. Using combinations of drugs that perhaps we wouldn't be choosing as our first mm -hmm. line choices, but that's mm -hmm. because that's the only realistic options yep. for those patients. Yep. And so you've got this huge spectrum from that kind of situation to the sure. sort of thing that we would do here for a neutering procedure mm -hmm. with the drugs and the, new the monitoring and all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And I suppose... One of the things that, you know, when I'm talking to someone in practice, I'm trying to say, well, like, you could get away with that, mm -hmm. but kind of why would you want to risk it mm -hmm. when you could be mm -hmm. doing this? And I, mm -hmm. I, guess, I know I'm sort of asking an obvious question away, but I guess if you could just sort of reiterate mm -hmm. why it matters, really, mm -hmm. um, that would be great. I, I think really... Uh, for me, doing a, a very good anaesthetic is, is, is very good personal satisfaction as well. And, and really, it's the welfare of the patient that we're, we're interested in. I think we try and tailor our anaesthetics to meet the optimum needs for our patients. And really, that's, that's what we need. And I think once you get the owners on board with this as well, it's, it's surprising how much they go down exactly the same route, that yes, they want the best for their patient. And that's really what we should be aiming for. For. I think we, we need to be improving all the time. I'm certainly trying to improve what I do on a daily basis, my practice. And that's really the, the, the ethos behind what I do, I think. Yeah, awesome. Fantastic. Um, I think that's, that's kind of everything I wanted to talk about today. And obviously, I really appreciate you coming and, and sharing your expertise. And as I say, um, I look forward to doing a podcast on analgesia in the future and then also hopefully going back and discussing 
you know, some specific patient populations mm. in the context of anesthesia. Because I guess, again, doing what, what I do, one of the hot potatoes always is, is cesarean sections, and that's oh, a whole yes. other can of worms oh, that, yes. that we will yes. talk about at, at some point in the future. Absolutely. Um, so thanks again for your time. And to the listeners, as always, um, do feel free to get in touch. And if you have questions related to anesthesia or analgesia, really, I'm happy to go and, and ask Ian for you. Um, so you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page, or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And until next time, then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.